Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Jason Evans. Jason is a longtime producer who specializes in the travel genre. He moved to Hawaii in 2005 and has not looked back, would you? He was able to funnel his love of travel into a really exciting career working all over the world as recently as Botswana, where he got turned around after three days because COVID hit and that country went on lockdown. He tells us that crazy story. We talk a lot about actually how the pandemic will change travel shows now and in the future and how Hawaii has been able to be relatively COVID free. Okay, so live from Hawaii, it's Jason Evans. Hi. Aloha, Lisa. How are you? <laughs> Do we have to say aloha? Do you actually say it in to. your regular day life or is it just for us? Tourists? No, you know, we, we do quite a bit. We do quite a bit. Okay. Well, I want to start the podcast by asking you to thank me because as I see it, I changed your life. Do you see it this way? I can be convinced <laughs> into that, into that, uh, that direction. So the story goes, well, first of all, I want to back up a little. We'll leave people in suspense. So you and I met, we both had just, I believe, just started at Banyan. This would have been back in 2002 for a pilot called 48 Hour Wedding. Remember that? A gem of a pilot that was. Gem of a pilot. So I think I've spoken about it before in the podcast, but the synopsis is it was sort of a game show and then it turned into a docu and it's like the newlywed game. One of the three couples wins and then they have 48 hours in real time to actually plan their wedding. So legitimate 48 hours. Oh, tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) I had to rent a hotel room last minute and sleep for two hours because I cannot do no sleep. And (laughs) Christo yelling at me like, you got to get out of there. And like, no, I need to sleep. So the thing that I remember vividly, two things I remember vividly about that. I'm working with you, which was great. One was that when we were kind of batting back and forth about who we thought would be the best winners of the game and who would eventually be the people that we would follow. Most of us were leaning toward the sort of all American, really sweet kind of normal couple, you know, and this was 2002, this reality hadn't even been around that long. So I don't think that we were thinking in that kind of loud, you know, what would make for great reality TV and you seeing around corners and being the visionary that you are, said, no, we got to pick this other couple. They're way bigger personalities. Do you remember this? Then we ended up picking them. I mean, yeah, they won I, the game. I, Sorry. I remember I convinced you guys to do a casting call at, at the Maniunk Brewing Pub or Maniunk Brewing Company. Yes. And it was the GM of the brewing company came up and said, you know, my fiance is a cheerleader for the Carolina Panthers. We're pretty outgoing. Like, how do we apply for this? And I, the more I started talking to him, like, this guy's pretty funny. Like this guy's cool and like has a good story. And I remember going to bat for them yeah. um, and, and against the grain a little bit, but it, it was, and it, and it ended up being, I think, you know, for, I think that show only aired a couple of times, but I thought they turned out really good for what the goal was. Like they were very into it. They were very open with their emotions. And, and yeah, I, I do remember that. Yeah, they were really good. And didn't they end up getting married at that said pub? Uh, they had the reception at the pub. They got married at the Great Valley Sheraton. And I'll never forget. Um, and it's funny because I've told my fiance this story of because it was so frenetic that they had 
the music on a CD player. And when she walked down the aisle, they played the song you're supposed to play when the wedding's over, like, dun, 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 yeah. dun, dun. Yeah. and when the wedding was done, when they said their vows and they were walking out, they played, here comes the bride. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, like, I don't well, remember that. Yeah. That's I'm like, funny. you want your free wedding. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then you kept in touch with them, right? Do you still keep in touch with I, them? I do not. I, I did for a little bit. They were they were both very cool. I, I I did enjoy them off camera as well. I thought they were they were both really fun people. Um, and then we kind of drifted away. So I, I think I kept in touch with them for a couple of years, and then I think they moved. And and social media wasn't quite what it is now. Right. A little bit harder to keep in touch. And didn't the couple that we all want to get divorced shortly after? Yes. <laughs> okay. See that epilogue would have been interesting though. The epilogue would have been <laughs> been, been the one. Okay, so the other thing I remember about that is at one point during the 48 hours, you either called me or emailed me because we had Blackberries at the time. And you said, do you know how to text? <laughs> so <laughs> I said, I don't know. Let's give it a shot. And I get, you know, probably on my flip phone at the time, a text. And that was my first text, I think, ever. So I'll never forget. Oh, that. I changed your life, I you think, is how we've come full circle on this. Well, that's for sure. I think my husband would agree with you because I love to text. <laughs> that's so funny. And then, okay, so we ended up working together on a dating story. Yep. Also at Banyan. So I ended up taking over the show at a certain point after a few iterations of showrunners. And the reason I say change your life is because we decided we were going to go to Hawaii. It's like a Brady Bunch episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, we traded everything under the sun to make it possible because there was the lowest budget ever for any show I've ever done. And we all went to Hawaii and two of you never really came back. Yeah. So back even before that, I used to, my dad's job used to bring him to Maui every year in like the eighties and nineties, his company Mm. had clients in Korea. And so they would meet in the middle, they would meet in Maui. And so when I was like age six, I first came to Maui, stayed on Kanapali beach at the Maui Marriott. And did that from like age six to like 14. I do that every year. And in my head, I'm like, oh, like everybody does this. So like the first year we didn't go, I'm like, what do you mean we're not going? Like it just, you know, spoiled of, of the, the idea of travel. So when we came for Dating Story, that was the first time I've been to Maui since I was 14. And I, I think I kind of had to talk my way onto that shoot where I volunteered to do like underwater video. Yes. I had to make myself <laughs> purposeful. Um, and so, and we ended up staying at Kanapali Beach Hotel, which is half a mile down the strip from where I used to stay as a kid. And it certainly jogged a lot of, you know, youthful memories. And, and yeah, so we filmed out here. Okay. So just so everyone's clear, you're in Maui. Yes. I, I moved to Maui in 2005 and I believe we filmed Dating Story here in 0203. Somewhere 03. In there. 03. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was such a, don't you have the best memories of that trip? I do. I do. It was fun. So it was, fun. you know, because I think for me too, is I had been here as a kid. So I kind of was like, Oh, I know this beach. I know this, but I was here as a kid. So that was the first time I was here as an adult where it was like, Oh, I'm kind of in charge. Like, yeah, let's everyone go do this. Let's go do that. And I think it gave me a different perspective um, on this place. And so, you know, I certainly, it certainly rekindled quite a bit. So I don't know if you want me to get into like, the next stage of that. I do, but I just want to say that in my revisionist history, (laughs) you never came back. (laughs) Like the way I remember it is we left you at the airport, but you might as well. 
you so might you as well did come back to Philly for a year before you went. I, I did come back to Philly and then dating story ended and I got shifted over to trading spaces family. Got it. Um, and so I was on trading spaces family and then trading spaces did, you know, kind of in the beginning of the boom of game show reality TV, they did their home free. They did that Orlando situation where they sent people down for two months right. to live in Orlando. I lived in a Radisson on international drive in Orlando for two months um, at a Radisson. And I remember flying home from Orlando and I went to my flight in the morning. It's like, if anyone wants to take a later flight for a free ticket, you can fly anywhere in the domestic USA. So I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Next flight, two hours later, if anyone wants to take a flight for a free ticket, you can get a flight anywhere in the domestic USA. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. I did it four times in one day. And so I got two round trip tickets to Hawaii. And I went back to one of my coworkers, who was one of my good friends of like, hey, do you want to go back and like check out Hawaii again? So we did. And so flew out here, um, you know, and I remember being out here, there was a local visitor channel and I'd always kind of talked about trying to either go Sydney or, uh, or, or somewhere else. I was really into travel and not necessarily the home design stuff long-term that I was working on. Mm -hmm. And so we were watching this like local tourism channel in the hotel. I'm like, I could do that. And so I cold called them and was like, how often do you hire producers? And they're like, we just let someone go last week. Do you want to come in for an interview? So I went in for an interview on my vacation and about halfway through, they're like, what part of the Island do you live? And I was like, well, I'm at KBH. And they're like, what do you mean you're at KBH? I'm like, I'm at Kanapali beach hotel. And they're like, where do you live? So I live <laughs> in Philadelphia. And they're like, why are you here? Like, we thought you lived on Maui. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, I would move here. I would take this job. And they didn't believe me. So while I'm doing this interview, my other coworker meets a friend of a friend who works in an event planning company. We meet up later and she's like, I think I just got a job offer to be an event planner. And so the two of us who had worked Wait, together Wait, was that Julie? Yeah. So that's Julie yep. Harris, who was another yep. friend of ours who- And production on, manager. Yeah. Right. And worked on Dating Story as well. And Julie, did Julie come with us to Hawaii the first time? Yes. Okay. Yes. She came as a production manager the first time. So okay. we end up, I go back to Philly and I get this call and they're- in February, my contract for trading spaces, the season was ending. I believe the season was ending like right around Valentine's Day because it was a, a distinct date on the calendar. And they called me the day after and said, we don't believe you'll do this. So we'll give you the job. But the terms are you got to get out here in 10 days. And I said, okay. And so I moved from Philly to Maui in 10 days, which probably was the best case scenario because I think if they would have said six months or something, <laughs> right. I might have talked myself out of it. <laughs> totally. But I... I remember moving my stuff out of, you know, I lived on Spruce Street right behind Banyan. I remember moving my stuff out in a snowstorm and a never week later, I was, yeah, never looked back. And so it was in originally, you know, oh, I got there for six or 12 months. If I like it, I'll stay. If I don't, I'll keep, keep moving, whether I go to Sydney or someone else, somewhere else. And yeah, that was uh, over 15 years ago on March 1st. So crazy. What I love about that story, and I remember you and Julie were kind of the envy of everybody because <laughs> who doesn't dream of going to Hawaii, right? right but it's right. like, how would I work there? How would I make it happen? And so let's get into it. I mean, you figured out a way to have a thriving television production career in Hawaii. Doesn't mean you've always stayed put, sure. but let's talk about what I what I loved about the opportunity to talk to you was, I don't know that I've had anyone on that's almost exclusively worked on travel shows. And it's it's a great genre. It's one that a lot of people are interested in. And I think it has a big escapist quality to it. And I think it's interesting to hear kind of how you ended up down that path. 
Yeah. You know, like I always, when I was in college and stuff, I always was destined to be a sports broadcaster. I thought I was going to be the next Bob Costas, the next Al Michaels, like ESPN, like dead set. And I had an intern, I had a few really good internships, which is my top advice to any high school or college student is intern, intern, intern. But one of them was for anyone who's in Philadelphia knows who or Gary Papa was. And he, Gary Papa was the top sports anchor for ABC in Philadelphia, just a loved guy um, within a city. And I interned with him. And I remember one night him telling me like, do you really want to do this? Like, do you really want to go city to city? Like, you're not starting in Philadelphia. You're going to be starting somewhere. Bangor, small. Maine. Where I yeah. Started. Yeah. Lubbock, <laughs> Texas was the one that I actually looked at. Oh boy. And, and so, uh, you know, he, he had this honest conversation of, you know, I've got to get out of bed from my wife to come in and report about a trade for a guy who doesn't treat me well. Like, just so you know, this is what's going to be involved here. And the, the more I, I was involved with that, the more I, my kind of travel bug from a kid, I mean, my dad used to travel a lot. I used to travel with him, kicked in. I always thought if I could navigate my way to travel or animals, that would be the path to go. And so, you know, Banyan was sort of the link into production and television to understand how TV shows work. Trading Spaces was incredible. Anyone who worked on it knows that. Um, but internally, every time we flipped open colors of paint cans, like, uh, you know, an angel lost its wings in my head of like, <laughs> this is, I don't think this is what I want to do long term. Like, I love these people. I love what we're doing, but this isn't, this isn't me. And so when I came out here and saw this visitor channel, I saw the first outlet of all they do is tourism production. So the biggest thing I had to do is like a big ego check for one is that it, when I came out here, you're taking a huge pay cut and you know, what you're doing is not as, you know, dynamic on big stars and big shows, right. but that, that sort of thing wasn't as important to me. Like I, I wanted to give this a, a legitimate chance of like how to learn travel production, how to learn how to, you know, produce pretty pictures in pretty places. Anyone can go put a camera up on a beach and it'll look nice, but how can you, you know, weave stories around that. So for me, that's how I navigated there when I was there for about a year, year and a half. The challenge I had with the, the local visitor channel Maui is that it was not run by people that come from a production background. So right. there was a little bit of butting heads where you're dealing with people that came literally from banking that just had the cash <laughs> to, to try to do this. And so there, there was going to be an end point there at, at some point. And it was whether I could launch out on my own and do productions that revolve around travel here, or if I had to go somewhere else. Um, and I decided to take the chance and, and, I saved up a bunch of money, um, you know, for a good year. I kind of had an exit plan in my own head and took a month in between leaving that job and starting my own company. I took a month and I went to New Zealand and Australia. I went to the Outback by myself for seven days and just hiked Amazing. for seven days just to clear Amazing. my head and just, <laughs> just to like, make sure, like, are you ready for what's going to happen? Because, you know, it's, there's going to be a lot of unknowns. I started my company in 2008 and had a good start. And then, you know, you had the financial recession in 2008, mm -hmm. 9, 10. Um, so I had to decide whether to stick through that or bail. Um, and I stuck through that. And I think because I stuck through that, I was able to be a resource, not just on Maui, but obviously Hawaii is an incredibly popular place for shows to film. I was able to kind of keep my octopus tentacles in different pots, whether it be Food Network, Travel Channel, Discovery, A&E, all these different contacts that I had 
friends of friends, things like that, I started to become a good resource for them and was able to really start planning routes as a legitimate production resource out here. Yeah, I think you have a mixture of a lot of really excellent qualities of what makes a good producer, because first of all, you're likable and you have good relationships, you know, like everyone who's worked with you, not just likes you as a person, because there's a lot of nice people who are not the best at what they do, (laughs) but you're also, even the example that you came, that you gave about, you know, figuring out how you can make yourself useful to come to Hawaii because we didn't have the money for everyone to come and people had to have a role. That's so valuable, especially for like the younger set that listened to the podcast, you know, figure out a way to not just learn everything from the ground up, but how can you, where are the holes? Like, where can you fill those gaps? And I think that a utility player, you know, you shoot, you edit, and and that has served you well in your career because I think, you know, some people might say, well, you're in, you're in Maui. Like I have this shoot in LA. I, that's why would I bring you in for that? But you're able to kind of pivot on a dime and say, here's why I would be good for this show. So talk more about like how you would pitch yourself to people. Um, you know, I pitch myself as a producer first. I think that's my my strongest point. But I will say with with my experience on producing, you know, these travel series, I'm cross shooting a lot. You know, with we talk about money for shows, travel shows eat up the you know, to me, eat up a, a massive amount um, just on the travel itself. So you have to be really calculated in how many how many people you can bring and how many people are trying to talk you into it. They have to say no. A lot of times on on the show I produce currently, Awesome Planet, we could go out with a crew of three, four people, which means one of us is cross shooting. You know, somebody else is carrying you know thirty pound tripods, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I just did a show. I'm not allowed to say who it's for. I don't think yet, but it, for a major streaming service um, where I was. B cam, like legitimate B cam, you know, with and confident in that, um, and comfortable in that role. Because I think I learned very early how to edit. I learned very early how to shoot. I dabbled very early with hosting, and I think learning each of those helped me to understand what those particular people are looking for or what they need. Um, and so, you know, out here in Maui, I do edit probably half of the projects I work on. So when I'm doing one of our travel series for our editor back home, I think that helps me be more aware of what he or she may need. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's important to have to value all those things. And as you talked about, networking and connections, I think, are also one of my bigger strengths when it comes to being a resource for people internationally. Um, what I have found in the travel world is it's a little bit smaller than you think in terms of you know, your camera guy in Panama may have worked with this person, that person. Oh, I, I know him. I know them. Um, and I think it's important for me to, to constantly be curating new relationships and networking contacts every single place we go, um, because eventually you never know who you're going to need to call on for, you know, advice, help, support, ideas, those sorts of things. So you've done so many shows and so many things going to be hard to get into a lot of them. So, so I'm going to ask you some more broad strokes questions about the things that you've worked on. What's the craziest travel story you've had filming a travel show in terms of like, you know, being chased by a great white shark or you know, <laughs> terrorists abducting you at the airport. I don't know. Is there any story that yeah, sticks out? I mean, well, I mean, I, I've got funny ones, I guess, you know, the beauty is in the eye beholder, I guess fear is in the eye beholder too, in terms of situations. I do feel that. So yeah, the show I produce currently is called exploration. Awesome planet It's hosted by Jacques Cousteau's grandson, Philippe. Um, so Clearly, we're going to be in water situations quite a bit. 
I've done some other productions with a couple scuba divers here on Maui um, where we've got ourselves in, in definitely some scenarios that are a little bit more dicey. But I think it comes with experience of doing these things that, uh, you know, I have been, I've been circled by sharks in the Galapagos all by myself. That wasn't fun. Like I've been oh in God, helicopters. That's my worst nightmare. 45 foot. <laughs> it, but, you know, I, I think the comfort of, if I had never been scuba diving before, that would be a very scary scenario. I think with the experience of understanding situations and trying to remain calm, maybe I handle it better than a person who- So what did you do? Do you just freeze? Do you run away or swim you away? You don't run away. Uh, you know, we were in Galapagos <laughs> so yeah, filming. <laughs> yeah, we, we had some really strong currents. Um, and basically I had an underwater camera with me, which I think was helpful um, because the guys that I, I filmed this diving stuff with, they're, they've done- probably 10,000 dives each. They've always talked about how the camera is always the barrier between you and anything else. Um, and so as you're getting, like you have to do safety stops when you scuba dive. So you have to stay at 15 feet for three minutes. Like you have to, or it becomes like a life and death scenario. And right. so that's where it happened where, it, you know, 15, 20 feet out of the deep blue, all of a sudden I had six sharks come up, but I used the camera basically as the buffer, you know, between us and sort of, I think the other thing, especially with sharks and doing the show I do, I mean, we've, we've dove with sharks probably over a dozen times. I think the mentality shift um, that we try to convey, and for, for many people, a shark might be your biggest fear. I think as we, the more we work with researchers and more we're around them and understand behavior patterns, for us, we're not thinking these guys are coming out just to, to just attack us. Like that's not what's in their mindset. Like, are they curious? Are they curious who's in their neighborhood? Like what's this person or what's this thing doing? Do I like this or like this? Um, so I think for us, you know, it's not as scary. It's more adventurous. I would say, I mean, we've dove with in Fiji, we went down 90 feet and dove with a couple dozen bull sharks with no cage um, under the right scenario. Um, we feel comfortable with that. But it, you know, for You're giving other me folks, heart palpitations. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think for us, the the most dangerous stuff we usually do is helicopters. Um, uh, you know, we did. We had a, a shoot in British Columbia um, where I basically I wanted to find an ice cave. I wanted to find an ice cave that nobody had been to and nobody filmed yet. Um, for me, it's important when we're doing travel stuff, and for everyone's in travel, you want to find something that people haven't done. It becomes harder and harder you know, as things get blown up with Instagram and things. But I had met with a couple safety guides in, in British Columbia, Canada, we used some GPS. We found a, a really remote glacier, but the helicopter ride out there was a little bit dicey. We had to you know, wear full avalanche suits, which for me, when you say sharks give me heart, heart palpitations, you know, I don't live in snow, I live in Hawaii. So the idea of an avalanche, I, I feel behind the eight ball. I kind of know some basics, but I don't feel comfortable in that scenario. Um, so we had to do scenarios where we dropped food a half a mile from where we were landing in case not just an avalanche got us, but if we were out filming and an avalanche got our helicopter, we would be okay for a couple of days if need be. And then you're dealing with, you know, potential ice falling, things like that. So those are some of the scenarios. I mean, I, a month ago, I put cash in a passport in Zimbabwe. Like we certainly have those sorts of things as well. Wait, so, you did what? <laughs> you did the old uh, express, express lane passport. Got where it. you throw some cash in a passport Got and it. <laughs> make sure you get yourself across the border a lot quicker than maybe you normally would. <laughs> right. So, Gotta grease uh, but some we, hands. we haven't, yeah, I, I don't feel that we've ever been, you know, um, we've certainly done risky things. I don't know that we've been knowingly in danger. Um, we've certainly put ourselves in scenarios with experts, 
we've been very close to bears. We've been very close to sharks Been very close to snakes. We've been, you know, helicopter and bad weather, like those sorts of things. Um, but we oddly feel a sense of control in those things. And, and the more we do it, the more experience we have and maybe foolishly or not, um, we feel comfortable with it. So tell me your top five favorite places that you filmed. And then what are your top five bucket list places that you haven't been to yet? Um, it's a great question. So I think if you're looking at internationally, um, Croatia was a place for me that I never had on my radar before. Um, and we actually ended up filming in Croatia because I was trying to work with the tourism board in New Zealand. They happened to be rep by the same PR company. And so the timing wasn't working on New Zealand. They you know, offered the idea to go to Croatia. I was like, all right, well, yeah, we'll check it out. And when we were there, just absolutely blew me away. That's on my bucket list too. By far one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. I, I think it's, um, you know, you get a quarter of the people that are typically in Italy and Greece and you still have the same beaches and, and you have a little mm -hmm. bit of certainly some interesting, more recent culture, because if you think about their civil war was in the nineties, which is like, mm, we were crazy. alive for that. So you still see you know, buildings with bullet holes and things like that. So you, you, And they have some beautiful national parks. I would say Croatia, New Zealand. Um, yeah, I love Northern British Columbia. If you look like, I love orcas, bears. You know, we filmed a few times in Northern British Columbia, Canada. In the U.S., I think some places that have kind of um, pleasantly surprised me have been uh, Moab National Park. Pretty much all the Utah National Parks yeah, are amazing. Are, yeah, each each one of them has their own sort of Bryce Canyon. It is is an incredible geological feature. Um, so I think those are some. I just you know I had a trip to Africa, which was bucket list. Uh, um, get cut short in March, uh, where I, I got there for a couple days, but I can see why it's bucket list. So it's certainly a place I'd like to, to get back to Wait, other so, places. So that back I up there for a second. So where, where oh, you were supposed to be filming in Zimbabwe, you went there and then because of COVID-19 you had to turn around. Yeah. So we, we had a film shoot set up for South Africa and Botswana. Um, where we, I had like a 23 day trip ahead of me. I was going over a couple of days early to check out Victoria Falls just on my own. So my crew was meeting me a couple of days later. We had been monitoring COVID constantly. Um, and there was a crew of four of us going, myself, two camera operators and the host. And we had felt comfortable that South Africa at the time, the week that I left had only had like two cases. And so we were kind of running through scenarios of, I think we can get this in. I think we can get this done. And our host's biggest concern, which was very relevant, was I'm not necessarily as worried about their outbreak scenario. I'm worried about transportation that we get stuck there. I don't want to get locked down. I don't want to have, you know, the U.S. airports closed down for two weeks. I don't want to be stuck in Africa uh, with, with no outlet. And so we were kind of monitoring that. I took off on Wednesday, March 11th at 7 p.m. out of Newark. And Wednesday, March 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern was when uh, Trump made his first press conference restricting travel on Europe, when the NBA basketball player um, found out they tested positive and they canceled the season, and Tom Hanks right. revealed that he had it. So in in-flight Wi-Fi, I pull up. Twitter just to kind of like, Hey, you know, what's going on? Cause I got a text from my host, like, Hey, Trump's going to speak tonight. So I'm like, I wonder what he said. And I'm looking and I'm just thinking like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so I literally, and, and then I get an email from the owner, uh, the executive producer of awesome planet cancel the shoot. I don't want anyone traveling anywhere. And I'm two hours from Cape town on a 14 hour flight. Oh my <laughs> God. So 
I booked, I changed my flight home. I got the first nonstop I could because all the flights, my return flight was supposed to go through Europe. I was supposed to go through Germany. My host was supposed to go through London, like all these hot spots that you want to avoid. So I ended up booking my flight, a new flight back a couple days later out of Cape Town. And so I did have a couple days where I'm like, all right, well, I've got three days on the ground. Like I might as well just go, you know, do what I was originally going to do. So I went up to Victoria Falls. I went to Zambia and Zimbabwe. Um, and it, it was crazy because when I landed in South Africa, I got infrared scanned. I got temperature checked to the forehead. Already. They were already I, ahead of it. In Zimbabwe, I'm filling out oh health God. and travel histories. And when I come back through Newark, I, I got back on March 16th, I think. You know, I go through customs, a global entry, and I hand the slip and the guy's like, nothing to declare. I'm like, nope. He's like, welcome home. I was like, oh that's it? God. Like, that's it? That's all we're doing? So I... I had to, long story short, I had, I had a, a multi-week trip in Africa that we had been trying to film in Africa for four years. Um, and we finally had it, you know, we had some trade set up with some, you know, really remote lodges. We had some really cool stuff with some, you know, lion conservation programs, leopard conservation programs um, that we had to kind of scrap on the fly. And even getting out of there, I woke up the night before I was supposed to leave South Africa. I was up in Zimbabwe checking out Victoria Falls and South Africa said, we're banning Americans and British from coming in. And I had to fly out through South Africa. I, I had to get in. So that's why in Zimbabwe, it was kind of like all the nations were starting to be like, no more Americans, no more Brits. Fortunately, they gave a, a, I think a 48 hour uh, grace period on that. So I, I got in on the last day that an American could fly back into South Africa to get my connection back to Newark then from Newark to San Fran, San Fran to Maui. And um, yeah, it was an wow. experience. Newark, Newark airport on March 18th at 7.30 a.m. on a Tuesday, which would normally be a zoo. I was the only person in line. Right. It was it was like, you know, it was very eerie. And the airplane from Newark to San Fran, the flight attendant says their busiest flight, maybe 10% full. So it was Were you nervous suddenly, about flying at that point? I actually, weirdly, I thought that flying would be the safer place to be because there were so few people and because I, I just felt that everyone was being so proactive about it by then. Like it, it seemed like things change overnight and, and being Africa was weird because I kind of felt like I was cheating the timeline. Like everyone at home was kind of like, this is getting real. And over there, I'm in the middle of nowhere thinking like a, I'm not even interacting with anybody. Like we're seeing waterfalls and animals like very isolated. Um, so it was, it was a reality check coming back. I, I didn't feel as nervous flying, but you know, it, I can't imagine being a flight attendant, put it that way. Um, and having to continue to fly when, when there was so much uncertainty and unknown. And when I came home, I did a, a self 14 day quarantine for my fiance. Like she literally moved out and went to a different place for 14 days to be on the safe side because so much was unknown. Um, so, we, you know, we did everything by the book and very yeah, good. So. so what's it been like in Hawaii during all of this? Hawaii has been interesting. You know, the state imposed, I guess the, the one advantage Hawaii has is although we are a state, we, you have to fly here. You can't just drive across, across the, the state line. So it makes it a little bit easier to enforce mm -hmm. travel. So they installed a 14-day mandatory quarantine, which means if, if you come to Hawaii, whether you live here or you're visiting, you have to stay in one place for 14 days. That means you don't leave the room. So if you go to the hotel, you've, you've got to stay. As soon as the hotels heard this, they all closed. They're all like, yeah, we're, this does not make any sense for us. So most hotels closed originally till 
uh, June 1st, giving it two months. They've still extended that through the end of June. So people still coming here and people have kind of, I guess, tested it and been like, oh, you know, they've caught, I think they've sent home over 30 people. A lot of times people will post on social media. So you sign all these documents and you go out and you're like, oh, I'm at Waikiki Beach and no one's here. <laughs> and they'll come arrest you and send you home. Wow. And so be- because they've enforced this, the hotels have been closed. And because the hotels are closed, the airlines have stopped almost all their routes, um, especially to Maui. I think there's uh, three days a week. I think there's one flight from Delta, but United, American, like they, they don't even fly here right now. Um, so because of that, your daily tourism numbers have gone from like 30,000 each day on average last year to, you know, 100. Um, so killing your economy. Well, that's the great trade off, right? Is, is yeah. it right. is you have very few cases, though, right? We have all. Very little. And I think in the last week we've had maybe three or four. Um, in the entire so, state. In the entire state. Wow. And so that's the challenge is we're doing great. But the, the problem with us are, and, and I think you're going to see places like, you know, Las Vegas have, have similar challenges as well. It almost, it, I want to be careful how I phrase this. It almost doesn't matter as much what we're doing, because if you're going to go back to having, 10, 20, 30,000 people a day coming here, like where are they coming from? Yeah. And exactly. that's, that's the fine line that I don't know that there's a magic answer to. Um, on, on the bright side, we have not had any outbreaks here. Our hospitals are great. You know, if you live here, you exercise on the beach, it's a whole different world seeing, you know, some of the most popular beaches in the world completely empty. Um, but, you know, how they go about the decision to reopen travel is going to be interesting. And I know they've talked about trying to implement tests at departure airports that people would have to get tested before they fly here. Um, you know, those sorts of things, it, it's going to be a challenge for them. And I think for any tourism spot is it's great that we control things here, but what happens when you have folks coming from States that haven't controlled it? So as far as your show that had to halt production, what are you going to do? You said, that you were midway through shooting the series for this season. What's the plan? Is there a plan? There, there is a plan, but it has to shift like everything else. Um, You know, we're in season six of awesome planet. Our premiere date is in October. We've got four of our nine episodes done. Um, We were scheduled to have the remainder episodes five through nine filmed uh, mid March through the first week of May. And then we were going to be completely in post-production summer. So Africa's, out that was going to be a couple episodes worth of content there was certainly optimism in my head of like okay you know we'll, we'll come back in august or september like we'll we'll still get this done we're not going to get back there this yeah. year i mean you just it's you just have to kind of play by the controls of, of what's going on so I, I think for us and i've talked to Philippe, our host about ideas of I think we're going to have to be really controlled domestically. I think rather than, you know, for sometimes with Awesome Planet, we'll kind of, you know, we basically have, well, four segments, four main stories per episode, um, where in some episodes we might have four different locations for those four stories. Maybe it's one location with with longer takes on those stories. Um, maybe it is in controlled places. I'm already out here. We have production access out here. Philippe's in Los Angeles. Obviously, it's production access in Los Angeles. Um, so we're, we're kind of evaluating how to reshape some of these episodes, these bigger picture episodes and either scrap them entirely you know we're not going to do something on lion conservation leopard conservation what can we do in place of that that's a little bit more controlled um where we'll feel safe traveling and we can still tell a good story so 
you know, we keep shifting what we think is going to be a decent travel time frame. I think now our best case scenario is maybe mid-July, possibly August. So we have four shows that we can put in post-production in the meantime um, to at least kind of get ahead of the game a little bit. But it certainly is a challenge that, you know, we didn't anticipate. You have all these big picture ideas and these travel shows, anyone who works on them knows that some stuff happens, you know, some stuff does happen overnight, but a lot of it takes a lot of time, especially when you're looking at logistics for international destinations. And so, as I said, Africa was four years in the making and oof, um, wow. you know, in the best case, if, if we have another season next year, we maybe we try to revisit it, um, but you just got to audible out and, and go to something different. You know, it's interesting because there's certain pluses to it because you're mostly filming outside, you know, there's no studio work normally. Yep. So that tends to go in the safe column, but the, yep. but the act of traveling to get there, to be on the plane, to go through the airports, that's some of the worst germ transmission hotspots. Yeah. And I think this, this comes back to the mentality perspective of if you're a seasoned traveler, and I, I've talked to a lot of folks in, in the travel industry and this, you know, whether it be PR folks, tourism folks, constantly keeping in touch with them during this time of like, Hey, what are you doing? What are you hearing? Um, some folks that work with cruise ships that are going through a whole other, you know, time scale. I, I think for a seasoned traveler, we might have a little bit more confidence that people aren't going to travel as much right away. I think what you're going to see, I think what the industry is going to see is especially in the summer, a lot more road tripping. You know, if you're on the West coast, most West coast people, road trip anyway because of the, the nature aspect they have outside i think east coasters are going to go up and down the coast i think you're going to see less of that you know new york to hawaii new york to you know far off destinations so i think early on airlines are going to have to be more attentive to this they're obviously making you know tons and tons of adaptations on how to make travel safe because they are the pipeline for everything they're the pipeline for you know work commuters for travelers there's a huge industry behind that. So I think if we have confidence in what the airlines are doing, we might have a little more confidence to take a few flights. Are we going to be on an airplane for 10 or 12 hours? No, I don't think so. Not right now. Um, but, you know, everything for me is like, you know, LA is a five hour flight and then everything's pretty manageable from there. And, and same when you get on the East Coast, everything's fairly manageable. So if we can kind of minimize the flying, I think that's kind of our game plan on how much we can do sort of in these you know, drivable territories. But it will be interesting for us. I mean, all of us fly you know, on our crew, fly 100,000 miles a year, and we're very familiar with, with airline protocol and practices. You know, it's whether we have confidence in what they're doing and, and if there's any issues early on, um, that'll, that'll be the key. Does it make you think, because you do travel so much, I mean, God, you said you traveled um, you, you wrote me that since 2012, you've averaged flying around 120,000 to 130,000 miles a year. And then last year was 148,000, which is unbelievable. Does it change now retrospectively the way you'll behave, you know, like in terms of how you fly when you are eating local food? I mean, things that may have seemed innocuous or very low risk before, does everything freak you out now or is it going to change your personal behavior? I don't know. I, I think it's a hard question to answer, especially, you know, going out to eat. Um, I, I like to think it won't because I think that we won't start getting back into more heavy travel until we see, I guess, signs of positive trends. I, I mean, I'm all but, you know, casting off 2020 as sort of, I got my travel in, like, we're right. done. We're done here. 
you know, maybe, maybe we have a shoot in California, maybe we have a, a shoot on the East Coast, um, close to where the home base of our office is, and maybe one in Hawaii, and then we just kind of pack up and, and hold off for 2021. I, I don't think it would. I think it would, you know, am I going to second guess going into a crowded restaurant standing room only? I probably won't do that. But, um, you know, some of the places I think about where we go and what we do, and as you talked about, a lot of the places we go are a little bit more remote. So there is a little bit more comfort level there. But I, I just don't know yet. Outside of, you know, washing hands and bringing hand sanitizer with me at all times, like, I, I don't know what the travel behavior changes are going to be. On airplanes, I know what they're going to be. Um, and that's an easy fix, but yeah, your, your day-to-day life, um, on, on where we go or what we do, um, we film in museums a lot. We film in aquariums a lot. These are very public places. I think that we won't be doing that until there's some confidence. And, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, if, if there is a, by 2021, there are more solutions to this with a vaccine or, or more tangible items that make people feel more safe. But I don't know if I answered that question well, because I just don't know yet. I don't know how that's going to shape up. Yeah, no, I think it's a big question mark for everybody. It's hard, it's hard yeah. to have a crystal ball. All right, so before we wrap up, I want to get back to my question of your bucket list. So you said Africa. Name four other places that you want to get to in your lifetime. Uh, Antarctica has always been the golden goose. Africa, Antarctica. There are a couple places in the South Pacific that I really would like to get to, some more remote you know, dive sites. Um, I would love to get to Patagonia uh, in South America. And number five, let me think, uh, probably something like the Egyptian pyramids. Very cool. I've been to Patagonia. It's incredible. Yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about it. It's great. So the travel bug is not going to go away anytime soon. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it just it just gets put on hold for a little bit. Okay, I'm going to be super nosy. So you're engaged. When you think <laughs> about your future and whether or not you guys want to have kids, like how do you think that will impact? Because I feel like all these people like you, you're able to do all of this because either you're single or you don't have kids. And I think it's hard when you start to have kids to have that same lifestyle. You don't have to answer that I, if you don't want to. I, I, I'll answer it this way and say that our host, Philippe and Ashlyn, um, when we first started our show in 2014, um, I met Philippe. He and his wife, Ashlyn, had their baby in 2000, early 2000, let me kill me, here, <laughs> late 2018 or early 2019, in the last couple of years. I think they're, it's a let me small, rephrase that. Small yeah. child. <laughs> but Philippe had a baby in the last couple of years. Um, I think that there is some definite changes in behavior on, we go to some really cool places. Sometimes it's, you know, can we stay an extra day? Do we build a day off in the middle? Um, I think what I see now from Philippe and other folks that have kids, it's, Hey, I don't need that extra day. I'd rather be at home. And I, you know what? I will, I will wake up at 4am for a call time. If that means we can fly out tonight and not tomorrow morning. Um, so I, I think those things would be predictable. Um, and, and honestly, I think eventually, you know, am I going to fly 140,000 miles a year for the next 10 years? I, I would hope not. <laughs> so yeah. So I, I feel like I've gotten the heavy stuff um, mostly behind me and doing it currently for the next couple of years. And then we'll assess it from there. This was so much fun. I'm realizing now that the last time I saw your face was at an airport, I think in Philly, right? Like six years I, ago or something. Ironically. Yes. We met, <laughs> we last saw each other at an airport. So uh, th- this is a super good time and it's, it's been cool 
you know, we talked about the Banyan web of sort of all these different people that have gone off to different careers and different industries. And um, I like to think that I'm kind of holding down the travel corner and, and uh, enjoying seeing what everyone else is doing as well. Me too. It is really, it's like the, the band that disbanded, but everyone still has so much fondness for each other. It was a special time for everyone who was there kind of in that era. So yeah, I'm glad that it brought us together. I'm glad that we had this chance to chat. Stay safe. Yeah, seems like as well. you'll be fine there. <laughs> <laughs> lucky, lucky. And um, yeah, send me some fun travel pictures that we can post. Will do. Thanks, Elisa. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. 